Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I'm your host for the Inclusion Bytes podcast. In this series, I've interviewed a number of amazing people who simply had a conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at cchangehappen.co.uk. That's S-W-E, changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows on iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode 90, with the title, Conversations Beyond Borders. And I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Cal Moody. Cal Moody Goda, or KG, to her friends and associates. KG is a leadership consultant, executive coach, and DEIB strategist. When I asked KG to describe her superpower, she said it's her cross-silo perspective, passion for fact-based, big-picture thinking, and a commitment to ethical, compassionate business. Hello, KG. Welcome to the show. Hi, Joanne. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So you're in Amsterdam at the moment, and it's uh, a bit cold, damp, and uh, and wet over there, is it? Yeah, the temperatures plunged this past week, so we're headed for a rather frosty winter. Looks like here. Yeah, I guess it is the first of December, so uh, yeah, I, I guess we've got colder weather to come. But uh, yeah, as long as we're wrapped up nice and warm in our own homes, that's all that matters right now. Absolutely. KG, conversations beyond borders. Tell me more about that. I loved when you picked that title for our conversation. Conversation is very important to me. I call my business the human conversation because I think if we can all rise above our little differences and have conversations at a human level, we'd definitely be able to build a better future for all of us together. And so conversations beyond borders seems perfect for our conversation this morning. Yeah, it, and I, th- I think that's... Uh... A good starting point, isn't it? Because often, and we look at look at the world around us at the moment, where there are conflicts and tragedies happening, wars, conflicts, whatever you want to describe them, and most of them are where conversations break down. And it's really, really important that we recognise how we don't always have to be right. You know, not not being right is really, really important, and understanding perspectives. So. For me, that's the basis of conversation. So what, sh- what do you talk about in, that, in those sort of terms? My own sensitivity and, and my lens is informed by the fact that I've always felt like I don't really fit in. I remember I felt like I didn't fit in as a young girl growing up in a rather patriarchal, patriarchal culture in South India. I didn't feel like I fit in as a young professional pretty new in New York City, Manhattan. I spent a decade there. And I think as I went through life, my realization was all of us are seeking that sense of community, that sense of validation, wanting to feel seen, heard, understood, accepted. That's a universal human emotion. But all of us are mired in our own little 
you know, worries, wanting to, feeling alone and wanting to connect and yet failing to realize everyone else is likely feeling the same. We all feel like we are islands marooned. And if we could embrace our own positions in those borders, recognize that maybe standing, feeling like we're standing outside looking in, everyone else is in the same spot. It might make it easier to really appreciate somebody else's perspective, somebody else's viewpoint and accept that my journey might be different from yours, but you're equally valid and entitled to having your opinions, having your life experiences informing your worldviews, just as I'm entitled to mine. And that space of patience, compassion, curiosity, that comes, I think, both with willingness to accept it, but also maybe time and, and patience with that. I certainly still feel I'm on that journey, but I'm willing to embrace it and I invite everyone else to do so as well. Yeah, that's really important. And I think what you're saying there is we have to avoid the temptation to to want to be right, to to speak through our own lens, to th speak through our own perspective as the only thought. I think is the, the trouble with opinions is they're often based on our own facts, our own, our own view of the world, and not necessarily reflective of others, other facts, which is why we know diversity is important, diversity of voice is important in organisations and society to get more than one truth, because there's obviously my perspective, your perspective, and the shared perspective of, of a greater view of, of, of something. But we, we get too hung up, though, don't we, on having to be right, confirmation bias, I think, you know, for want of a better way of describing it. we As a human species, why would I want to be wrong all the time? It's it's a it's a human trait to be right, isn't it? And I think we we need all kinds of perspectives, all kinds of energies and visions. If I could pick an example of a team that's working together, we need visionary folks who have distinct ideas and assertively state them with clarity. We need that voice, but we also need folks who are quite strong in their own thoughts and voices, but are feeling ready to hold a space for more than one truth at the same time. And we need both those voices. In a company, you need that assertive, charismatic, extroverted promoter of the business idea, but you also need folks who are collaborative, open to other ideas, willing to explore, this might be true, but what else might be true? What are we not considering? What are we failing to consider when we say assertively, this is the direction we want to go? You need all those energies together in a team. It takes discipline and it takes commitment, but it also takes a great deal of self-confidence to be holding that space of saying, I am very sure about what I believe in, but I can also respect somebody else's beliefs and be willing to listen to it. It's not easy. I acknowledge that it it takes, I think, a lot of self-confidence and, and patience and uh, certainly experience. Yeah, I think often we find that leaders, managers, project leaders in, in organizations often lack what I would call cultural competency or cultural intelligence to be able to be competent in environments where they are have a, a range of different views, range of different lived experiences, range of personality types, if you like. And often when we're trying to lead these teams, we we don't truly understand each person's motivation, each person's 
communication style, each person sort of the way they want to interact. And sometimes we treat people the same and miss the nuances of people's personalities. Agreed, John. And also I think that as in the corporate sector, we tend to deify a certain personality type, the cult of personality, which is fairly prevalent in the United States, in the corporate world there, certainly has seen, seemed to have spread in other parts of the world as well. I see that, that charismatic CEO type of a personality, that's the one that's most recognized as leadership looks like that. I had a conversation with a quieter friend once and he told me, KG, do you recognize what a disadvantage it is to be a soft-spoken, introverted, shy person in the corporate world? You're simply not seen as leadership material. And, and what a blow that is to all of us that we cannot recognize leadership in all its forms. Being, being outspoken, outgoing for an introvert or even an ambivert or someone who is not yes. competent in speaking out can be very exhausting, can't it? And, and having to, it's almost inauthentic as well because you're having to be the person you're not. You're covering, you're masking, you're pretending just to be heard. That's exhausting. Yes, it is. We shouldn't have to mask. We shouldn't have to code switch. These are all terms that perhaps uh, you and I are familiar with. But for those who are not familiar with it, masking is uh, if I were to feel uncomfortable with being myself and I have to put up a front, behave in a certain way, change myself uh, to fit into a workplace culture that would be masking and code switching is similarly, I speak differently, I communicate and hold myself out in a certain way because I feel speaking as myself, communicating what is naturally my style would not be acceptable. That's code switching as well. And we all do that. And we should be cognizant of the importance of creating spaces where none of us have to mask or code switch. Yeah, I mean, people are, are, are probably more familiar these days with the term or phrase, bring your whole self to work, and also psychological safety, which are, are kind of ways of creating environments where people don't have to mask code switch or, or or cover or hide who they are. So we're already trying to bring those those sort of sense of of self into the into the workplace and allow people to be themselves more and more. Hundred percent. Psychological safety is absolutely the number one thing all of us need until I feel I am in a safe space, I'm not even able to be curious, to be a learner, to even bring my best to work. Forget about feeling like I can trust my colleagues. That won't even be the second or third step. The first step is to feel safe. Then I can relax. Then I can learn. Then I can do my best. And then perhaps I'll consider connecting with other people. None of those will happen without psychological safety. You're absolutely right. So you mentioned that uh, you were... Uh... It based in North America for a while. You've lived in Singapore for a while. You've maybe you grew up in India. Now you're in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Tell us a bit about your career and how that's evolved over those years. That's a beautiful analogy right there. I think that's a, a perhaps paralleled by my career as well. I've moved around a lot and that informs my lens. Similarly, in my career, I started out as a lawyer. I practiced law in New York City for about seven years. And therefore, that legal perspective, that risk assessment, that compliance with regulatory, the logic that 
all of us abide by certain laws is very central to how I look at solving problems in the workplace as well. And about seven years in, Joanne, I realized I was that classic Indian kid. I was with blinkers on. Grades were important, as is with a lot of children growing up in the global south. Grades were important because your education is your passport to a better life, more secure, food security, shelter, financial security. All of that comes with working hard and having access to better education. And that's what I focused on. And law seemed like a solid career. I love it. I absolutely enjoyed my legal career. But seven years in, I was beginning to question what else is out there because I had never explored anything else. My dad's a lawyer as well. And our conversations around the dinner table were all around that career. And so MBA then seemed like a good pairing because an MBA really is like a finishing course. It's a a miniature introduction to a lot of different topics, marketing, accounting, finance, And I realized I was gravitating a lot towards leadership development and human strategy, human capital strategy. And I think it's because what gave me the greatest joy with law was understanding that we all operate within a certain regulatory framework. And the challenge is to find solutions for your clients within that. And in a corporate world, when as a consultant, as a person working in human capital strategy, it's the same. You're working within the corporate regulatory framework and you're trying to solve for your clients, for your stakeholders, for your products. And so it spoke to me. And about, again, seven years in of that, I'm a curious learner. I thought I'm a lawyer and, and consultant. A lot of people confide in me. How can I hold space for better conversations? How can I better support people who are speaking with me, confiding me, in me, all sorts of things. I thought maybe coaching is a good skill to acquire. And it was catalytic and transformative. Joanne, I just ended up thinking, why didn't I do it 20 years back? I would have been a better human being for it. This is so phenomenal because it was indeed training on skills, but also deeper reflection, the the kind that I'd never learned in law school, never learned in business school, is really exploring who I am, why I show up in certain ways in certain situations, and what do I want to be going forward. And that sort of deep exploration to my own psyche was meant to be a foundation for how I can hold that space for other people. It's part of coach training, but it was so transformative for me. I just It just became a big part of who I am today. So like with how I moved around a lot physically, geographically, I also moved around a lot in my career. And all of that boundary spanning, standing at the edges, looking in, is also what feels like my career. These are all support services, law, consulting. These are all folks who are standing and supporting central business activity. And I guess that's the red thread is throughout all of that, I was seeking, what's the right thing to do? How can we be the truest? How can I be the truest, most maybe value-based person I can be doing the right, the right, most right thing I could do? And that's also what I realize is what I am trying to create with my work today is creating those workplaces that are ethical, inclusive, inspirational. 
I think it's possible for all of us. I think I often find that's a big component that's missing in lots of education is helping people find that inner core. Because if you are in touch with that, no matter how crazy the context is through COVID, through any of the complex VUCA-ness of the world, because you know who you are at the core, you're informed by that. And that in turn will be your North Star. I, I think I, t- I mentioned this to you in the green room before we went live, that uh, my background was in IT and computing. And I probably spent the formative parts of my life and career in a logical black and white binary, it works, it doesn't work, very absolute world. And I'm I'm going to make the assumption that being a lawyer is, is quite absolute at times. It's you win, you lose, you're right, you're wrong. There's a definitive answer to everything. And what I found moving into the people space was that there are no absolutes. People are people, people are different, people have different perspectives. And I I realized that I was forcing my brain into a logical place that it was okay with, but but actually it wanted to find the human connection. It actually wanted to find the human factor. I wanted to explore compassion. I wanted to explore different feelings and emotions and be vulnerable. Whereas in the past, it was all around right, wrong, black, white, fixed, not working, all these things. And so I found the last seven years of my life very fulfilling. And I'm, is, that, is that a similar sort of journey that you've, you've discovered with yourself? I love that. You're absolutely right. But as someone working in the technical field, I imagine precision, finality, clarity, absolutes are over your world. And in many ways, law is precisely that as well. That's been my own journey too. In fact, one of my most favorite stories is when I joined my coach training program, one of the master trainers was a man called Mark Hempstead, who's sadly passed on. And in my conversation with him, I said, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm trained to be neutral. And he he had a big laugh about lawyers being neutral because lawyers tend to be very opinionated and whole. You're absolutely right. It's like, you know, it's either this or that. And I often think of that twinkle in his eye when I think about how far I've come in that ability to a whole space for myself and for others that more than one thing could be true at all times. The world is full of such complex and wicked problems, isn't it, Joanne? You and I could both be working on the same problem. You're addressing a certain aspect of it. I'm addressing a certain aspect of it. My solution might harm yours and vice versa. Yet both of us could be absolutely well-intentioned and focused on solving the exact same problem. And therefore, what do we do then? It's about Mm. embracing the fact that both things can be true at the same time. And that's the complexity all around us. And we need to find ways in which we can collaborate and work across silos and solve those wicked problems and understand sometimes it's about priorities. And sometimes it's about maybe yeah, uh, coming together and addressing something else that both of us can agree on. I don't know if you found this in your when you were practicing law that people wanted they wanted an answer they wanted they wanted some sort of reassurance that they were right or they were wrong or would this work with this. And same in my IT career, people came to me and they wanted me to be the expert. They wanted me to have the answer. And there's an immense amount of pressure to have to be the answer to everyone's problems, to be able to resolve things. And I often say to people, the reason it's a problem is because it's a problem. If it wasn't a problem, I'd have solved it instantly. I'd have fixed it. I'd have have come up with the answer. 
But the fact of the problem is I have to investigate it. I have to think about it. And that, that's not necessarily a now thing. It could be a week thing. It could be a month thing. And I appreciate you want answers quickly, but problems are problems. They, they, they've been resolved. And, and I learned in my electronics career background, you can, you can fault find, you can half split, you can try, narrow down the root of the problem to yeah, left half or right half, then left half or right half, then left half. So you're narrowing the, the scope. But with people, you can't always do that. You you have to go into them with vulnerability and compassion. You have to you have to go in with not knowing the answer, and almost going in not needing to find out the answer. Just help people down a path. I think that's true in the in the DEI space as well. That there's no absolute solutions, just a a best journey that that uh, everyone can get behind and buy into. Yes, and and as an advisor, I find that the answer of it depends is the least popular answer. Nobody wants to hear it. Can you just get to it? Don't hem and haw. Don't be stuck in analysis paralysis. But I think that due diligence of looking at everything painstakingly, considering all potential pitfalls, all perspectives is absolutely vital. That's precisely the space I occupy. That's my personality as well. Like I'm very much data driven, but what I find, and this has been my journey, Joe, is you might do all of your entire process, but you need to also be informed by a very clear understanding of who you who you want to be, what you want your legacy to be. The many situations in life and work where there are no clear answers, and then you need to be informed by what can I live with? I need to make a tough choice now as a leader, as a manager, as a person responsible for something. And there are no clear answers. I need to make a call, but the call needs to be made on what are your values? At the end of the day, looking back, are you going to be satisfied that you did the best you could? It might fail, but if you proceeded based on a certain set of values you've thought through, then likely you're going to regret less in life. And, and that's very important. I find that missing often. Perhaps one of the most important things all of us can invest in is surfacing and unearthing and holding close to us those values and also acknowledge that maybe those values evolve as they should. You know, what your value system, what my value system was when I was in my teens is certainly not what it is now as a person with some life experience and some travels and some education. And I think we should all continue to evolve. I traveled quite a lot in my younger life. I, I worked for a global bank and I was privileged to be able to travel to their offices around the world from west coast of america california north and south california east coast new york miami across europe far east hong kong singapore so i, I traveled quite extensively also in my social life i was a member of a club and we regularly used to have european mainly european meetings and, and further afield where i would uh, stay in people's homes for, for a long weekend maybe four or five days meet their children eat around their table Sit around their their fire in the back garden, in their in their hot tub in you know in Iceland or somewhere. So you, you get to experience all these different cultures, and that is so enriching. To be inviting someone at his home, as a member of their family for several days, and it's a privilege to to enjoy their hospitality and culture and learn so much from them. 
spot on. One of my current favorite metaphors is um, I'm, I'm new in, in Europe. I, so this is my third continent I'm living and working in. And so one of the things I learned early on is probably apocryphal, but apparently the Canadian Inuit have over 50 words to describe various forms of snow. And that's because they have a lot of snow that they encounter in their daily lives. And that's the vocabulary they need. And the Dutch, by popular pop culture, have more words for bad weather than all the words in Inuit culture. And so it it may or may not be true, but it tickles me because I think that is so important to understand a person to truly understand and know a person. I think we need to understand what are their challenges, what are their priorities, what is it that they are currently focused on. And so as much as all of us are working these days, perhaps in global organizations with global vision, that local sensitivity and understanding what shoes a person's walking in, what is their vocabulary, what do they need the most nuance in their life for? And knowing that it varies, what I have the most vocabulary for, probably you, your vocabulary is very focused on something entirely different. And to truly know you and understand you, I need to get that. Yeah, having, as you say, this is now your third continent. You ha- you must have picked up a whole breadth and depth of cultural information, you know, food, you say the weather, the, the way people interact with each other, how they greet each other personal space there's a whole lot of different dynamics more than just plain language isn't there around communication and and being together i don't know about breadth and depth but certainly greater humility around the fact that there's so much we do not know so much that it's so very easy to not realize not sense not be sensitive to and how important it is to keep your, your eyes wide open that's that's that sense of learning and humility is certainly what i i'm more and more growing towards i you know from a relatively fresh perspective i do notice that for me one obvious change as a practitioner is in the us it's pretty forefront of conversations and consciousness the language and vocabulary and and sensitivity around inclusion because there has been a lot of public discourse. Now, people may fall at any end of the spectrum. There's a whole range of reactions and and thoughts and opinions about it, even within the United States, but certainly it's the forefront of uh, that conversation there, public discourse. In Asia, for instance, there is a greater sense of we are a little different we know we understand in a certain sense, but also because in the global south, there is a great motivation for getting with the rest of the world. Aspirational interest in ensuring we correct what needs to be corrected. Anxiety and obviously worry about holding our identity secure, but certainly let's you know get a move on. And because of that motivation, the conversation has trickled absolutely into public discourse there as well, Joe. And that's my observation, is conversations are happening. In fact, perhaps even a little bit more advanced and more open-mindedness in my observation in Asia, having lived there for nearly a decade as well. I'm brand new in Europe. 
and I have to say I've had the fortune of meeting many, many, many wonderful advocates, practitioners, allies and amplifiers for DEI. But my very new eyes tell me here that I think perhaps there's a more widespread block between knowing and doing. The identity seems to be we are the good guys. We have not had historic tradition of slavery. We have not had a historic tradition of being oppressors. And therefore, we good guys, we have it more sorted. This is not our problem. And with that identity, I think also comes a stubbornness, a sort of a blind spot around curiosity for other perspectives what else can I do if I hold that I'm a very good person a very woke person a very sorted and inclusive person then perhaps I'm shutting off conversation that's possible around what can I do differently what can I improve more and that is my speaking as a very new person here I, I would say yeah. perhaps that's something we can embrace more is curiosity that's, around what can that's a very interesting perspective so as a a person who's lived in the UK most of my life, I'm white, grown up in a fairly average family. I don't see myself as a colonialist. I don't see myself as a an invader. I don't see myself as somebody who has gone out into the world and destroyed cultures. That's something that happened in the history books. That's something that happened by somebody else. Whereas I think what I'm picking up on what you're saying is when you're in the global south, you're living with the impact of colonialism and that echo is still there even three, four, five hundred years later. So you when you come to the you know, the global north, you're 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 seeing a kind of a, a detachment from that reality. But when in the global south, you're living with that day to day. That's beautifully put and, and thank you for saying that. The the thing that disconnect from the acknowledgement of power and privilege, it's so subtle, it's practically invisible, and I think it becomes very easy to have a big blind spot around it. And perhaps the most Dutch example I can give is the Dutch are great cyclers. They cycle everywhere. And when we were new here in the summer, we all stepped out and said, let's go cycling together. It's a beautiful family activity. And on the way out, Joanne, we were cycling. It was gorgeous. Dutch countryside is stunning in its beauty. Flowers everywhere, meadows, sheep, horses. Such a country focused on sustainability. It was beautiful and joyous. And about halfway through our journey, we said, let's turn back. And all of a sudden, I was huffing and puffing and I couldn't focus on any of the countryside. And all I was thinking about was like, my God, I suck at cycling. This is so hard. I don't think I can cycle all the way back home. And I think the difference simply was that when we were on our outward journey, the breeze was aiding our journey forward. And that was invisible. The winds were invisible to me. They were pleasant. It was a beautiful summer breeze. But the whole system was aiding me in moving forward. And I was able to focus on the beauty of the world and, and my family and my lovely little boys and just how good this all feels but the minute the system was working against me it was equally invisible but I couldn't focus on anything all I could focus on was my hardship and that's very true of of folks from the global south folks from any sort of non-dominant identity 
trying to operate in workplaces in cultures where they do not have the that invisible systemic support power and privilege it's invisible to both of us but if you have an advantage you are able to enjoy and navigate the workplace in a way i simply cannot and i might look like i'm preoccupied with my uniqueness my difference and how that makes my life difficult it might seem like it's a loser attitude and victim attitude but it's because nothing else is possible for me while the system is making it subtly invisibly harder for me to be part of it and and navigate it with the same ease and confidence that's that subtle difference between knowing and doing because in many workplaces in many leadership let's say a table if we uh, use that frequent dei metaphor i'm at the table but i certainly feel like i'm an invited guest i'm there at your largest this is not my table i better watch it i better watch my language i better be watchful about what i need to and how i need to navigate it because it might be rescinded that invitation might be rescinded any moment one false step how does then being strategic being more rising above myself become possible to me at all i'm focused on survival and and if we can it's that one on one inclusion 101 all of us universally i think we can say majority of us are working on it consciously but after that basic level of inclusion we now have built a table and invited folks in that next level of inclusion where we focus on these subtleties these nuances these ways in which it's easier for me it's my stage my table my mic versus maybe it's not yours and you feel very much like a guest how can i make that better we can make more sensitive to it i think it's it's it would be a lovely step forward a leveling up if you will on inclusion i love that uh, analogy and obviously your your real experience of that subtle breeze on your back gives you that un, you're unaware of that subtle aid and boost you're getting but when it's on your front you become hyper aware that the same breeze that helps you is the same breeze that oppresses you the same breeze that stops you succeeding makes your journey harder so if two people cycling in different directions with the same breeze have a different experience and that's that's a really powerful analogy and i i love the way that you brought that out there and you talked about this this table it's not your table it's somebody else's table and that's the challenge i find is that whether we're talking about female empowerment whether we're talking about anti-racism anti-semitism whatever we're talking about yeah you know, ableism that the challenge is that the table it has been built and constructed and hosted by people who hold power and privilege in some way whether they're white whether they're men whether they're able-bodied whether they're christian or non-religious whatever it may be that's who owns the table and what you're saying is the day will come where people who are marginalized people have, have taken their power they've they've put the wind behind them if you like and so they're getting the amplification then the people who used to hold the power and privilege will be either a guest at the table or they won't come to the table at all because they're not used to having those conversations from a position of marginalization so how do we how do we how do we get people who are used to power and privilege to recognize that and to want to have conversations 
it, it is very hard. I think it takes a lot, tremendous amount of discipline and self-reflection to be mindful even because it, it can be so subtle and so seductive to fall into the usual, it feels familiar, that usual pace of things. I was advising a global organization where there was a huge drive to bring in more global diversity at their topmost leadership level. And what I found was that they kept asking, why are we not succeeding? Why do we have such a high attrition rate? Why do folks fail to apply even when opportunity is given at the, at the topmost leadership level? And it was because folks had been there for the longest time. They were used to hyper-effective. I understand you completely because we've walked the same path. You've had the same education. We speak the same language. We know the, the organization that we have built from scratch inside out. Therefore, we have a shorthand. It's almost like I can look at you and you understand instantly what I'm thinking. But someone else from a very distinct, different experience, different skill set, different way of communicating, it just feels slower. And it's like, they don't get it. And what they say, I get it. I've known it. I've known it for years. And so when we do that, when we do that dismissive, fine, but this is slower and this is not effective, we are just seeking the comfort of what is familiar to us. But the impact of that dismissal can be tremendous on those who have been newly invited to that space. And that's really, really important to pay attention to. So what can folks who currently do have those dominant positions, whether it was conscious or not, if you observe that there are folks perhaps who are new to the table who might feel they are invited, they might be suffering from imposter syndrome or any other kinds of nervousness or anxiety around, maybe they don't quite fully belong in that room. What can you do? Be more mindful about the words and actions. If there is a conversation around a decision, an exploration of an idea, brainstorm ago, any kind, let the other folks share their opinions before the folks currently holding the, the familiar positions speak. I have seen many different mechanisms being employed effectively, Joanne. For instance, when you're voting on something, let even the unpopular choices be populated by the support of the leaders. For example, if you are leading my team and there's an unpopular choice that you're currently considering, if you give it support, whether or not you believe in it, it encourages those who are more quiet to speak up if they're thinking that our team is better off choosing an unpopular choice because you made it okay to choose that. Another could be, say there are some quieter voices that tend not to speak up in team meetings. You could invite them to send their opinion to you one-on-one -on -one via email or set up some time with you prior to the meeting. If there are quieter voices, what can we do to bring those to the fore? What can we do to make it okay for them to share it? Be Let's all be watchful about how quickly we dismiss something. A lot of times, we now reverse mentoring has become instituted in a lot of organizations. You have a 20-something intern sitting on the board. Are we genuinely encouraging that person to share their perspectives? Or, or are we being subtly patronizing without even realizing it? Pat, pat, good job. How is that going to encourage that person to share anything? Or dismissively making a statement of, oh, entitled Gen Z or Alpha Gen or Oh, you guys probably know all about. It's humor 
it's easy, it's familiar, it's comforting to resort to that quickly. Therefore, it takes discipline for sure to be mindful of it. These may be very, very subtle, but that's where we step up from inclusion 101 to genuinely leveling up and saying our actions, our behaviors, our strategies are now aligned with what we say we want. Because as a consultant, as an advisor going into organizations, this is my observation. If we hold out that we are an inclusive leader, inclusive team, inclusive organization, invite people in, and then we let them down by all of these subtle, subconscious, unconscious behaviors, more overtly, if there fail to be consequences of those leaders who are currently in dominant positions, they behave badly, they make poor choices, they're not aligned with our stated values. And as an organization, as a team, there are no consequences to that. Or worse, we let people in and when they speak up, we punish them, we punish the whistleblowers. In any of these three things, whether it's subtle unconscious or no consequences for behavior not aligned with our stated values, or we punish the whistleblowers for saying the uncomfortable thing. All three situations, two things happen. Those voices that are actively trying to make the workplace better, they quit, they walk out. And those voices that were mustering up the nerve to no longer be fence-sitters, to no longer be quiet, they will go right back into hiding. And that's a dead ecosystem. It's a, it's a real challenge, though, if you're in the EDI space, the DEIB space, as a practitioner, as an in-house person, to keep keep on keeping on, it, it is exhausting because you you find that you're always having conversations almost every day trying to enlighten people who often don't want to be enlightened. That they, they go, what's, what's wrong? Everything's good. I'm, I, I'm, I, I don't see race. I don't see color. I don't see this. You know, I treat everyone the same. Missing the, the sort of nuances of of their position, their power, as you say, their 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 the majority, and it it does become exhausting. And even though I, I don't work in inside corporates that often, just the conversations I have with with friends, just listening to the attitudes around a, a restaurant table, they're ingrained deeply in in many people's psyche and lived experience that they don't see the world as as, as having a problem. Again, you, know, you talked earlier about this wind in your face, wind, wind behind you. When you've had the wind behind you all the time, you, you think that's the norm, but it is your norm. And the fact that other people are struggling the other way, you just your attitude is, well, they have to work harder. Or why should I give them? Why should I? Why should I sacrifice myself for them? So how, how do we, as practitioners, as DEI professionals, or anybody out there who's listening who is wanting to change the world for the better how do we keep up and keep on in the face of this this these challenges all the time that's actually a question that i struggle with as well and so what bubbled up for me joanne when you were saying this it's so close to my heart and resonates with what i struggle with as well is joanne when you have felt exhausted or overwhelmed or asked yourself this is so thankless. Why should I even try? Why, why not go back to a, a safe, highly paying profession of being IT consultant? When that, when you feel like that, what has given you some relief, some comfort, and some motivation? What what has helped you recharge your own batteries? I suppose for me, I I 
I just dig deep into why I do what I do. Seven or eight years ago, I I was the person with the wind on my back, cycling with the aid. And one event, you know, my gender transition was my equivalent of of coming back the other way. And suddenly, I'm I'm now facing that wind in my face. That I don't understand what what oppression is, what marginalisation is, what it's like to be talked about in a negative way, or accused of things, or or, or judged in a way. So what I do is I I dig deep and 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 I suppose I I look back at that pivot point in my life where I went from being blind to being awake or woke, whatever you want to call that word to awake to what's going on. And that's why we do what we do. That's why I do what I do is once you've seen what's going on, once you're aware of what's going on, you, you can't, you can't go back. You, can, you can't take the other pill and forget it all again. You, you, you are, you, you've made that, 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 that choice to expose yourself to what's going on. So no matter how exhausting it is, I know it's more exhausting for other people who are living it in a, in a, in a, a harder way than I experience it. My life is relatively privileged still. I'm still white. I've still had a good education. I'm still British. I speak I speak the language of my country. I have a house. I have a family. I have I have lots of things of privilege. And I have one element of my if you like my characteristic, my personality, my being that is not so privileged. There are people who are have we have refugees. We have people migrating into this country with nothing, not even a, not even a pair of shoes, not even the language, not even a penny in their pocket. They have a far tougher time than I will ever experience. And I think by being aware and having that compassion, that empathy, that humility, all those kind of soft emotion intelligence type skills, you can't unlearn that. I don't think I can unlearn that. And so what keeps me going? knowing that this journey is infinite and there will be bumps on it, but we've got to keep keep on keeping on because if I don't, who will? Beautiful. Beautiful. That's so spot on. So you, you've, you must have noticed in your, in your work over three continents, there's obviously a, a different priority in terms of DEI work. You know, in, so DEI work in India, in the Global South, has a different priority than maybe in the Netherlands, maybe in, in New York or in, in North America. Racism is 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 big topic in North America. Is it as big in the Netherlands? Racism obviously has a different set of connotations, more about colonialism, maybe about education in, in India and the and the South, or gay rights or queer rights or things like that. So every, every we all have different views on it. And I, I remember speaking to a person who, who was based in Berlin and the challenge they have around racism is around the, the large Turkish population they have. So it's not around black people, white people. It's around racism against the Turkish population of Germany. So, and that's a different perspective. And I, and I also believe in the Netherlands, the words that Dutch people use for black and white a different have different connotations. So white means unwell, hasty, unhealthy. So they don't talk about black people and white people. They talk about they talk they use different language. So even the language in our DEI world 
it's nuanced and the priorities are subtly different and the challenges are different across the globe, aren't they? Absolutely. I think it is very integra- integral to the culture, the ethos, the, the philosophy of uh, people uh, towards life. And so, for instance, having lived in Singapore, very much a striver culture, work hard, martyr yourself at work. If if you stay till eight o'clock, Joanne, then I'm going to stay till 9.30 to prove how sincere I am and how hardworking I am. And it's a, it, it just infects, it's infectious, that attitude of strive hard and, and keep up. And so each culture is different. For example, in Indonesia, they have very much the approach that it's a family. The way they eat, it's it's communal eating, and that culture is everyone's family. And so that attitude that a leader of a team is almost like a parent figure for the team. It informs the kind of decisions, that attitude towards how they make policy choices and it's very very different from culture where it's very individualistic in Netherlands for instance it's very individualistic it's very around individual freedoms and rights I do what is right for me and so every corporate culture is unique to that office in that region and it's really important to recognize that I had for instance a a global organization that was needing to do some global work on inclusion and one of the plaintive voices from Asia was it's a peak period everybody is working overtime some of the places we live stepping out as a female or of any other vulnerable identity late night to take a long public transport commute back home is unsafe and in this time if you say we're going to spend a day learning about Martin Luther King and the history of racism in America, this is not relevant to where I live. And it is taking me away from a very critical period. I'm not going to get any time off for this. I'm not going to get any leeway around my deliverables. You made me unsafe. You stress me out even more. And it's not even relevant to me to spend a day studying the history of racism in another country in the other end of the world. And this is a reality. We need to come up with ways in which the work we are doing is relevant to the people we are trying to impact. In another instance, I was advising an embassy. They were all talking about unconscious bias. And the security person was sitting at the same table as a diplomat. And the security person said, I'm holding a gun and standing guard outside the embassy of a foreign country in my home country. When someone approaches the compound rapidly, I have a split second to decide. Now, I cannot spend 10 minutes, KG, as you're suggesting, letting the fast thought go by and the slow thinking kick in. I need to make a split second decision because my job and the lives of everyone I'm guarding depend on it. And therefore, we cannot have blanket training programs and blanket advice and and mechanisms. We need to be sensitive to the context of that particular person, their function, their level, their priorities, their deliverables, their geographic location, their cultural influences. It's so subtle and, and so varied. And that's where someone's ingrained bias becomes amplified because they, they don't they don't have the luxury or privilege, as you say, to to slow think. 
you are reacting in the moment. And that's where our ingrained biases exist. Those in the moment decisions were so someone's skin color, someone's gender, someone's just persona, their, their, their accent, those drive those instant decisions based on that person's ingrained bias. And that's, yeah, that's, that puts a perspective that's different on how people, their personal safety, their motivation, their drivers to protect themselves will, will kick in. Whereas we as DEI practitioners in most organizations, we do talk about slowing thinking down. We talk about bringing it to the prefrontal cortex. We talk about taking it away from our, our reptilian brain. But that, that is not a luxury that everybody has. Yeah. That's, that's a very interesting thought. And, and as a person who works in, oftentimes my lens is informed by compliance and, and risk assessment. If you think about whistleblowers, people in the ecosystem speaking up for what's right or flagging something that's going wrong, that's dysfunctional, the weight on that person and the way that person assesses their ability and willingness to speak up depends on what risks they are undertaking and what they feel the system will do to them after. If, if you are a person who is just feeling lucky to have that job, who needs that job to make ends meet, to pay the rent check, to provide food for the family, if you have responsibilities, then chances are you're going to turn a blind eye because you feel that system will not provide any consequences for the person who is being flagged or the, the act that is being flagged. Rather, the person who's speaking up will be punished. And we have to be sensitive about that. It's very easy to tell that single mom who needs her job very badly, well, why didn't you speak up? Why did you put up with it? Why did you turn a blind eye? Well, she didn't have a choice. Well, she perceived that she did not have a choice. If we're sensitive to that and, 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 and find ways in which we can make that, okay, level the playing field, so to speak, if we truly want it. And there's so many disadvantages to having dysfunctional workplaces where people in the system do not feel empowered to speak up, to flag what's going wrong. We've seen again and again, right, uh, Joanne, the, the, the submarine that exploded close to Titanic. There were voices along the way throughout the process of creating that vehicle that said, this is something is terribly wrong, this is not going to work. They were silenced. The same thing happened with many space exploration projects. Billions of dollars were lost. I'm sure you know this example very well because engineers had spoken up, had said this is not going to work. The mechanism is faulty. It's vulnerable. And they were told to shut up because billions were at stake and there's a deadline to be met and please stop quibbling about small details that nobody cares about. And then the end result is tremendous catastrophic loss to everybody in the whole project. Yeah, that's so true. And I, and I think one thing the airline industry has learned over the years is this uh, radical candle where you, you, you do speak up, you do challenge, you do not... It's a, it's a different culture, whereas we look at some cultures, as you say, it's about, about hiding, oppressing, keeping it down, because how could we be seen to be failing? We have to achieve, we have to hit that goal at any cost. Whereas, as I say, the airline industry has probably learned that it, it can't do that anymore. And it's uh, it's safer now than it's ever been, because people call it out and they are listened to. And I think that's that's really important in in the HR, in the people space, is giving people that, that psychological safety knowing they will be heard and it will be actioned, not not buried. 
I'm a great believer. You said for- I'm, I'm a great believer in the fact that there is no such thing as a legal entity. I'm a lawyer. I know that there is a legal entity. There is a corporation, but it's comprised of people. And therefore, my comfort level with conflict, the way I respond to conflict, the way I respond to a difficult conversation, the way I communicate when situations are awkward or uncomfortable absolutely informs the culture. It doesn't matter if I'm the boss, if I'm an underling, whatever my position in hierarchy might be, there is much to be acknowledged about the power of a single person. And therefore, understanding myself, understanding what triggers me, what's my response to conflict, how do I choose to communicate my difficulty, my discomfort, my stance on things, informs the culture. Likewise, the leader has a tremendous responsibility around having space for difficult conversations to engage in conflict in productive ways. So you're absolutely right. Radical candor and also maybe an understanding of ourselves and, and how we hold that space for difficult conversation. 100%. You said right at the beginning about you don't feel that you belong here, there, So I often talk about the difference between inclusion and belonging. What's your take on the difference between inclusion and belonging and how how do you think you can find the magic of belonging? I think there's loads of research on on, on what creates that belonging. It's certainly that final step of the pyramid of having diversity around the table, having inclusive policies, actions, behaviours, mechanisms and systems, and all of that together creates that sense of belonging. For me, my experience, personal experience has been it's fairly straightforward. All of us seek that sense of safety. Am I safe to be myself with you? Am I safe to speak up my truth and disagree with you where it's relevant? Or am I code switching and masking? And so once that sense of safety is established and it's a complex ever-evolving thing isn't it i have had conversations with best friends i've known all my life where i wasn't able to provide that psychological safety because in that instant i got triggered and i said something that's not supportive and that's it it fled there's no longer psychological safety and suddenly we're all armored up and watching carefully around watching our p's and q's around each other that can happen in the oldest most familiar friendships and so Let's acknowledge that psychological safety is ever-evolving, super complex, and every moment, you know, it changes shape. Once that's established, then if I am able to perform to my best because the systems, the processes, the policies are encouraging me, motivating me, supporting me, inspiring me to do my best work, and then I feel I'm rewarded for it, I'm, I'm seen. I'm acknowledged that I'm sincere, I'm hardworking, I get benefits from it. But most of all, feeling a deeper sense of purpose, that there is meaning to the work I do, and it's central to which way the boat is heading. I'm in this boat with everybody else. My work is valued, supported, rewarded, and we're all heading in the same direction. Then all those things come together to create that sense of belonging, I think. Then I know this is my team. I'm going to fight for it. Ultimately, we're doing some good in life. That's my personal experience. I think everyone's formula for belonging might vary and, and, and as it should. And uh, we should have conversations. I like that. No, I like that. I think that's pretty good. I think that, for me, that, that sort of sums up that essence. It's, it's being a demask, feel that sense of relaxedness, safety, as you say, knowing that you're respected and, and loved and, and that 
people have your back, those kind of things that are all part of that. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we've been chatting for over an hour. It's time has flown and we could carry on talking all day, I'm sure. So you, you've written a couple of books. You've got your own organization called The Human Conversation. Tell us more about that, how people can get hold of you. I have a website. I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. My organization is called The Human Conversation. I'm based out of Amsterdam, but I work across the world as many of us do, Joanne. So if you have a need for a leadership consultant, an advisor, a coach, a trainer, I'm available. Hit me up and I look forward to having conversations. And I have a question for you if you have the time, Joanne. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. I was curious about what's one thing that you have found evolved you've evolved on your thinking about one topic where you were on on one point and then you're like ah i'm at a different place on the same topic now um that that's that's a tricky one to answer because i've i've evolved so much in my thinking in the last seven or eight years it's hard i think to to put a, a kind of a finger on it and i think the reason I asked you about belonging, I think one of the things that I, I did some self-reflection and self-analysis on was around the sense of belonging and what makes that, what makes the difference between the difference between included and belonging. And I, I, it started to click into place for me, areas of my life where I was included, but I didn't feel belonging. And it, it helped, it empowered me to make choices to move on from things that, yeah, didn't make me happy. So I, I in the green room before I mentioned the icky guy and the the four areas, you know, what I'm good at, what the world needs, what I can make money at. And the important one for me is what I love. And I think what I discovered was belongingness in whatever I was doing was part of that what I love doing. If I didn't love it, if it wasn't ingrained in me, it became that 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 quadrant became unbalanced. I wasn't I wasn't feeling no matter how much I I was getting paid no matter how much I I was good at it if I didn't love it and I think to recognizing what belonging meant it allowed me to step back and say this isn't fulfilling me this isn't making my life better I am performing I am forcing myself covering masking pretending whatever it may be so I suppose that that essence of of ikigai and that essence of belonging now tries to drive me to do what I do. And it also drives me to recognize what doesn't work for me. So I'm not scared to step out and say, I'm sorry, that doesn't work for me. That's not me. I don't feel it. So that I suppose that's my answer to your question. Discovering belonging and what I love so powerful i love that and to be okay to say no to walk away from faces and conversations that are not acceptable for you it's beautiful those boundaries right? yeah. having those healthy boundaries spot on yeah and I, I i get challenged i'm a trans woman in my late 50s there's a lot of trans critical views trans critical rhetoric and people want to debate it and I've discovered I don't owe anybody an argument. I don't owe anybody a justification. I don't any, owe anybody a defense. So I'm quite comfortable saying, I, I accept we have different perspectives. 
I can't, you know, we're so polarized. There's no way we can come to the center of this table and have a conversation. Therefore, I'm sorry, I don't owe you an argument. I, I don't owe you a justification. Because that's what you want to do. You want to provoke me into an argument or justification where you, you want to win. I don't, I don't need to be right. I don't need to, to win or lose. I just, it doesn't fulfill me. Why, why, why take part in it? So it's allowed me to sort of step away from those. And when I see the negative language, the negative comments, the, I'm able to look at it very d- detached, very pragmatic. And I, the phrase I use, I, I see it as graffiti. So graffiti sprayed onto a wall. It, it's anger expressed on a wall. It's not at me. You have an anger. You have you have something that you that makes you different perspective to me. You're spraying on a wall. You're not. I don't have to look at it. I can drive past it. I can see it and go, whatever. I don't. I don't internalize it. I just see it for what it is. It's anger expressed somewhere else. So it allows me to reframe in that way. So I don't take things to heart. Okay, yes, I, I accept my armor isn't. It sometimes gets pierced when I'm not, not when I'm not ready. When I'm vulnerable, I'm, or I feel too relaxed. Sometimes it can hit me, but most mostly my self care, my resilience kick in, and I may need to hide for an hour or two and come back. But mostly I can process that and go. <laughs> Use my techniques. Get out of this rut. It's just graffiti. It's not personal. They don't know me. And then step away from it. So, yeah, it's, I think, all those combination of things is is what I've discovered about myself in the last three, four, five years. That's so important that those those tools for self-care and to just block out negativity and harshness when it's all around us. It's so hard. Mm -hmm. I love that you shared that. Thank you. I'm also I'm, I'm going to carry this on one more second. This is my show. Please. But I'm also conscious that I can't put my fingers in my ear and bury my head in the sand. So I'm not I'm not excluding and blocking out those thoughts. I'm just processing them in a, in a way that I don't internalize. So I, I look at them, I understand them, I recognize them. I hear your argument, I hear your debate, I hear your your view, but I don't want to engage in it. So I'm not I'm not denying you to hold that view. In fact, sometimes I actually spend time reading critical views, not just about tra- trans or gender identity, but critical views around racism, critical views around other characteristics. Because I think you have to know you have to know what's going on in the world, be able to process it, and say no, that's not that's not what I think. I, I've spent a lot of time trying to do some research on. The crisis going on in Israel and Palestine and with Hamas. I don't have an answer. I don't know the answer. But what I do know is I don't know. So I need to find out more. I have an opinion, and my opinion is peace needs to win. People need to stop dying. People need to not kill each other. People can't have their families, their lives, their everything ripped apart through conflict. That's what I that's what I stand against. Who's right, who's wrong? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can't solve that problem. But what I do know is let's talk about peace. Let's talk about resolving this. Let's talk about stopping people dying. So that's my focus. So so I, I do I do listen to perspectives. I don't shut them out. But I do it in a, in a way where I, I'm able to process them and learn about things and, and form my own my own model, if you like, in my head about things. 
and continually wanting to challenge it. Yeah, avoiding the confirmation, avoiding biases that I know I probably hold is deliberately trying to test myself to find alternate theories, alternate solutions. But probably my science background, my, my IT background, is you're always trying to look for information, different information, things, yeah, different solutions, different ways of working. So, yeah, I, I, I continue to challenge myself in that way. And that rigor. Anyway, sorry, that's me going off on one there. But, and that rigor is, is really important, that rigor and your recognition of, um, I, I thought you said it so beautifully when you said, you don't owe an argument to anybody. But for that rigorous scientific processing of a complex problem and coming up with a response rather than a mindless reaction needs a quiet time where you are able to block out unnecessary static and take in input, but nevertheless have that moment for yourself where you can think through things and have a, a thoughtful response to a situation. That's absolutely important. In fact, that's that's more important than being reactive to everything and responding instantly to every noise that comes your way. You don't owe an argument to anybody. I love when you said that. I think that's also a good trait for leaders to approach that you don't have to be, you haven't got to have the answer now. You don't have to respond now. You can say, you can hold the space. You can say, look, I need to, I need to think about that. You're right. There's, there's some challenges there. This, this, let me, give me, give me half an hour. Let me, let me, let me come up with some ideas. Let's get back after a cup of coffee and let's sit down when we're both ready for that conversation. And yeah, otherwise you, you do tend to just go off on a, on your first thought, your first bias, your third, first reaction. And we need to be measured and considered a lot of the time. Beautiful. In my humble opinion. 100%. <laughs> anyway, KG, thank you. Thank you. We, we could carry on all day. I know we could. And hopefully one day we'll actually meet in person somewhere, somewhere in the world. And for you, the listeners, thank you for getting to the end of this episode of the Inclusion Bites podcast. Please do subscribe if you're not already subscribed. And it's B-I-T-E-S, so Inclusion Bites, B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues. I've got a number of other exciting guests lined up and I'm sure you'll be equally inspired over the next few weeks and months. So this is episode 90. It's not long till we turn 100. So I'm hoping that uh, there's going to be a guest who's going to be magical for the hundreds. Who knows? And of course, if that could be you, you know, being a guest. So yeah, please sign up. I welcome any suggestions and feedback on how we can improve to joe.lockwood at seachangehappen.co.uk. And finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood, and it has been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.